Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Truth and Movies. Today, it's a jungle in there. The Rock is back in the game in a real sense in Jumanji. Michael Gracie's P.T. Barnum biopic, The Greatest Showman, starring Hugh Jackman and a handy circus, and Molly's Game, Walkin' and Talkin's Aaron Sorkin, making his directorial debut in a true-life tale of red-hot poker. Plus, a film club double bill. David Mamet's 1987 classic of pros and cons, House of Games, and Edgar Wright talks The Driver. Hi, everybody. Hannah Woodhead and Adam Woodwood. Hello. Are with us today. Hi. Hi. For what looks like being a pretty enormous edition. A bumper festive edition. Exactly, yeah. We've got loads of comments as well from people who've been writing in. You can do so if you want via email, truthandmovies at tcolondon.com, the address, at LWLies on Twitter, and there's the Facebook page as well, and, of course, the, the podcast page itself at the Little White Lies website. Loads asking for some kind of revisiting of The Last Jedi, which I think we might do at the end of the show so that we can talk about what actually happens in it. And if you haven't seen it yet, just don't listen to the end of the show. Adrian, though, picks up on somebody else's comment about classic taglines. He says, after the Texas Chainsaw Massacre was mentioned, I thought I'd share a couple of my favourites on a similar theme. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2, after a decade of silence, the buzz is back. (laughs) And Pieces, which is apparently a, a classic Spanish slasher film, you don't have to go to Texas for a chainsaw massacre. Indeed. <laughs> well, speaking of horror films, among the things which I haven't mentioned is Pitch Perfect 3, which is out today, which you actually went to see. Hannah. I did, yeah, for my sins. Um, Can you give us a one-line review on that? <laughs> OK, um, just don't bother would be my review. Really? Yeah, I like the first one, so no one can accuse me of not trying. Right. Um, the second one was OK, third one just no, just avoid it go see Jumanji in fact really yeah yeah I would recommend that over Pitch Perfect 3 last call pitches is the tagline in case you're wondering for Pitch Perfect 3 Jumanji meanwhile is going to be coming up after this where's the rest of me Fridge yeah I'm Fridge who are you it's me Spencer who is she Martha Why am I wearing half a shirt and short shorts in the jungle? I think we got sucked into Jumanji and we become the avatars we chose. So that means... Bethany? Oh, Bethany, don't look at it! (gasps) No! I'm an overweight middle-aged man. I don't have my Claritin and all I see around here is pollen. Well, I don't have a top two feet in my body! Four teenagers discover an old video game console and are quite literally drawn into the game's jungle setting 
All right then, Hannah, what did you think? Um, so I wasn't very excited about this. I really liked the original Jumanji back in the day with mm. uh, Kirsten Dunst and uh, Robin Williams, but I kind of didn't really see why this was being remade. Not even remade, because it is, it is pretty different. But um, I went and saw it, and uh, yeah, I mean... It is what it is. It's a Christmas sort of something to do when you've been seeing Star Wars film. And um, it's good yucks. You know, you sit there, have a few laughs. Uh, The Rock and Kevin Hart and Mm. Jack Black do their job. But it's just sort of a bit, all a bit pointless. It made this whole point in uh, when they were sort of doing all the marketing about it, kind of like subverting stereotypes. But it doesn't. It's just, it just sort of runs with them. It goes, ha, look at this funny thing that was popular in the 90s but doesn't have anything to add to the conversation. Well, the twist being here that the teenagers, the avatars they choose and that they then become in the, uh, when they enter the game, aren't in any way counterparts of who they are as teenagers. Yeah, so boys that, become girls. It's that, that classic, like, you know, like Freaky Friday right. or um, any other sort of body swap film where they transform into the complete opposite. So the geek becomes uh, Dwayne Johnson, the jock becomes Kevin Hart, the pretty girl becomes Jack Black and the geeky girl becomes Karen Gillan in this really sort of skimpy, bizarre outfit. Kevin Hart, for me, is a kind of modern counterpart to Martin Short as a, a figure that Hollywood seems to consider humorous, but I really don't... I like him in small doses. Uh-huh, not much. Um, That's handy, because he is quite diminutive, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> they make so many height jokes about him in this film, and it's just like, well, you know, if you've seen one Kevin Hart film, you've kind of heard them all, so, you know... It's How not... long is it, Hannah? Too long. Uh, it's nearly two hours, but... It will feel longer, I can promise you that. Um, the highlight for me was Bobby Cannavale, who I really enjoy in everything he does. Um, he's playing this sort of like goth Indiana Jones as the the villain. And he just like is acting in this a completely different movie from everyone else. He's taking mm. it like so seriously. And um, it's not a serious film. It's quite enjoyable. There are some sort of funny moments. But um, for me, I just want a bit more sort of meat. If you're going to go to all the effort of remaking a film, mm. really like, go for it. And I don't think this does. But for sort of lighthearted Christmas, you know, go to cinema on Boxing Day, then go for it. I think it's, you know, one to take the kids to. I'm fascinated by the idea that the studio executives or whoever came up with the idea for this movie have decided to make it about video games. Yeah. It's because a the weird. original Jumanji is set at the time of like the early 90s, mid 90s, mm. when video games were a thing. And it's quite pointedly about a board game. So it's almost like they said, oh, what are kids into nowadays? And we'll kind of update it. The whole thing is, so at the beginning of the film, someone jogging on the beach finds the board game, finds mm. the original Jumanji board game, takes it home for his son and goes, look what I found. And he goes, oh, a board game, how boring. And then it magically transforms into a video game. And he starts playing the video game, which is how he ends up in the video game. So it all revolves around this 90s video um console they've not even bothered to sort of make it more contemporary it feels like a really bizarre film that was sort of made in the 90s but not in kind of a good like self-aware retro way just in a bit of a cringy like awkward way curious it's directed by jake kasdan who is son of raiders and not son of lawrence son of lawrence wow. yeah interesting isn't it wow but has lawrence directed much not recently is he still alive no, no, he is, because he did Force Awakens. He wrote the storyline for The Last Jedi. Oh, that's But then left that project. Ron Johnson basically brought his own story in. Yeah. And he's working on the Han Solo uh, oh, wow. solo movie. Right. Yeah. Oh. Which is good news if you're a Lawrence Kasdan fan. It's funny that it took, um, I think, five people to write Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. Five people. I'm impressed more than anything. How is uh, Doctor Who's Karen Gillan? 
she's good like she doesn't really get a lot to do and she in interviews about the film has gone to these great lands to be like oh it's sort of subverting the stereotype of the sexy lady in video games a la Lara Croft but no it doesn't subvert that at all she does exactly what you'd expect she does some like sexy fighting and that's her role in the film you know I think this should be the point where we stop or Hollywood stops using the subtitle Welcome to the Jungle for anything. And indeed the track, which I imagine gets... Yeah, it, it's, gets, it gets yeah they get the money's worth of the licensing Good. for that, yeah. Hannah, would you give Jumanji some scores for us? Yeah, scores. Um, I'll give it a two, a three and a two, I think. Yeah, I wasn't really excited by it. In, enjoyment, I think, yeah, a three, it's a solid three. It's very easy to watch. It's you know a few laughs along the way but it, it's a two in retrospect it's mm. you know okay well it's boxing day hannah has some kids she needs to entertain does she take them to jumanji or the greatest showman we'll find out after this Inspired by the imagination of P.T. Barnum, The Greatest Showman is an original musical that celebrates the birth of show business and tells of a visionary who rose from nothing to create a spectacle that became a worldwide sensation like this. I promised you a life of magic and wonder. Look at those two girls. I have everything I want right here. If you could dream something up, what would it be? A lion, an elephant, or a giant, ten feet tall. Girls, I think I've had an idea. Imagine a place where people can see things they've never seen before. This venture is rather bizarre. People are fascinated by the unusual and the macabre. Okay. May I present the famous Irish giant. I'm not Irish. Uh, We'll work on the accent. And that's how it happened. Hugh Jackman is P.T. Barnum and also potentially a huge disappointment. Hannah, you've seen this, as have you, Adam. Yes. And how is... The Greatest Showman. I actually really enjoyed this film. Did you? I'm going to just throw it out there now and say it's better than La La Land. As a musical and as a piece of like big show-stopping entertainment, it's by uh, Benj Pasek and Justin Paul, who, who obviously wrote the, the music for La La Land. Did they do the music or the lyrics? Well, the lyrics, okay. Yeah. So they did, they did the lyrics. Uh, this has got a bit more of a kind of old-school show tunes vibe to it, although there's a bit of contemporary pop music thrown in as well. I'd say the only thing is that tonally, maybe it doesn't quite marry the setting uh, with the the contemporary feel of the music mm. so much, but it's Hugh Jackman is just he he really does steal the show with this one. He's, okay. he's terrific. It's the most Hugh Jackman thing I've ever seen, like peak Hugh Jackman, which isn't a bad thing. He's in, he in what, what is what, what just is... like you always see him in films, and he's very, apart from Logan, which I say is his sort of more like stripped back thing. But um, Greatest Showman is like all singing, all dancing, all like cheeky chappy. Hugh Jackman is very charming, you know. I didn't enjoy it as much as Adam, but I can definitely see why people would enjoy it. You know, it has something. It is like perfect Boxing Day uh, cinema entertainment. So P.T. Barnum is the man who gave birth to the modern circus. P.T. Barnum, I think, will probably be better known to American audiences. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of telling that they don't really, I mean, as a biopic, it doesn't really tell you that much about him. Upbringing, he has a sort of Oliver Twisty upbringing and then pulls himself up by his bootstraps uh, marries the girl of his dreams and then promises to sort of build a beautiful, fabulous, fantastical life for them. There's one point where Michelle Williams playing his wife is sort of saying, you know, you've got us, you've got me, you've got our children. What else could you need, basically, in life? And he says, but what about the magic? 
and that is the thing that he he tries to instill and and bring and uh yeah i mean hugh jackman's described it as a as a big passion project of his i think he's been trying to get this film made for a little while and uh even if musicals aren't your thing or if you're not really bowled over by what this film is trying to do i think you can just see how much he cares uh, about this character and, and his performance he obviously puts so much into it and i think his enthusiasm is very infectious all right Better than La La Land, says uh, Little White Lies. I, I should Morgan. caveat that by saying that I didn't really like La La Land. <laughs> yeah, okay. What scores would you give this then, Adam? I'd give this like a two in anticipation. Mm-hmm. I do like musicals, and I, and I would love to see Hollywood make more in the kind of classic style. And it's not necessarily a classic style musical. It's quite, it is quite contemporary, but uh, it's not something I was particularly looking forward to, even though I do like Hugh Jackman as well. And, and yeah, just was, was won over by it, actually. I'd give it a probably a four at the time. And a three, in retrospect, I don't think the songs are strong enough to really like stay with you. Right. None of them have kind of really buried in there. Hannah? Yeah, um, I give it a two, a three, and a three. The songs are a bit weird because they're kind of like such big set productions in the film and then you come out and about 10 minutes later you can't remember any of the songs, which is not really what you want from a musical. But um, I think it's sort of rare nowadays where you go to cinema and you see a film and everyone in the film is clearly like so committed to the film like you you kind of have to sort of give them a bit of credit for it it's, right. you know. Zac Efron in the cast yeah, and Z- Zac Efron he, he's coming in doing his whole you know high school musical shtick and we should give a, a shout out to Zendaya as well mm. um, who again she does feel like she's from that kind of Disney high school musical world and they play sort of love interest in this film but Zac Efron it's kind of obvious his heart's not really in it, and he's really overshadowed by Hugh Jackman in this. I mean, it's it's quite clear who the who the real movie star is in this, and I, I'm actually a fan of Zac Efron, and I'll defend him, but he doesn't really jive well in this movie with, uh-huh. with me. But one final thought on the uh-huh. Greatest Showman is people may have an idea of what P.T. Barnum was about and what he did, and he's quite known over here for Jumbo the Elephant and that kind of thing. But actually, the premise here is that he puts together a freak show. And as as I say, it very lightly touches upon, in terms of a biopic, about who he really was and, and, you know, how he kind of ran his business. And I think the one thing that really stuck out for me uh, and left a a slightly sour taste is is basically the way they present this freak show. You know, he gets them together basically because he sees dollar signs. He's like, these people are freaks and I can make a quick buck off them. But it has this you know what it wants you to buy into this idea that they're all like a big family and he's brought them together and given them like a second chance in life and mm. i don't know i haven't read too extensively into his life and 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 the kind of story behind that particular episode but yeah i would be surprised if that was the way it kind of went down you yeah. get you do get these glimpses of things he does in the film uh, like the freak show the way he treats his wife and the way he treats everyone he just doesn't necessarily seem like a very pleasant person but Hugh Jackman is so kind of charming and effervescent you can't be too angry about it but i suspect the reality is nowhere near what the actual musical is. Not so. quite so magical. Mm. All right. Next up on this bumper edition of Truth and Movies, Molly's Game. True story of Molly Bloom, an Olympic class skier who, after injury, starts running the world's most exclusive high stakes poker game which, due to the involvement of the Russian mafia, soon becomes the target of an FBI investigation. Here's the moment when Molly meets a lawyer, played by Idris Elba. Do you know about me? 
I've been briefed a little by my daughter, who knows a lot about your story because her mother's a moron. Her mother reads the tabloids. Yeah, and I read them too. I read your indictment after I got your call last night, and I bought your book. I'm only on page 112, but Molly, did you commit a felony and then write a book about it? I haven't run a game in over two years. Not to spoil the ending, but that's when the government raided my game and took all of my money, assuming all of it was made illegally, which it wasn't. I've been living in my mother's house in Telluride, and I wrote the book so I could start paying off debts. I just finished the press tour for the book, and I moved back to Los Angeles so I could start over. You ran games in L.A. for roughly eight years? Yeah. Without taking a break? Right. And then you ran games in New York for roughly two? Well, I took a break the last six months. In the first 112 pages, you name a bunch of names. Sorry? Uh, you name the name of some movie stars that played in your game. Yeah. They're not against some sort of poker code? Molly's game. It's got a cracking start. It's got a very Aaron Sorkin start mm -hmm. at the ski slopes. We kind of uh, see Jessica Chastain's Molly at the peak of her skiing career, trying out for the Olympics. And it gives us this very, like, if you've seen any films written by Aaron Sorkin or any TV written by Aaron Sorkin, it's a very, like, stylized. He loves maths and that he does this whole, like, spiel about, like, skiing and about the kind of, like precision of it which mm. is kind of it, it all sort of feeds back into poker being sort of a, a game of numbers not a game of chance that's true so. i really enjoyed the start it reminded me a lot of uh, the big short mm. in the way that it takes action and then takes you behind the story almost lets you in on the inner circle of of knowledge a great cast snappily directed i, I would say i'm not sure that that early tone is sustained all the way through the movie i felt that it runs out of steam a little bit it, that first 20 minutes is almost cut like a trailer and mm. it's sort of impossible for it to maintain that momentum but inevitably when it sort of settles into its rhythm a little bit is, is when i started to lose interest a little bit i think one of the issues is the fact that it's her own account of what she did mm. and it's a little bit anticlimactic. The closer you get to the end of the story, the more you realise why she's written the book. Well, the film really runs out of anywhere to go with that story. And then it kind of turns it back into this father-daughter mm. thing. So you have Kevin Costner, who's introduced at the start as her dad, basically playing the world's worst psychologist, <laughs> who yeah, culminates in like this redemption moment, more for him than her, actually. Mm. I found that there's a scene towards the end where, where they kind of reconcile, and it's bizarre. I mean, it's, it's totally... Really weird. Yeah. It's, it's all kind of on him. But yeah, I mean, Jessica Chastain, she's a terrific actor, and I think probably does some, some of her best work in this in terms of you know, just really carrying the, the film. And, and I think with Aaron Sorkin, the way he not only writes dialogue, but the way he kind of shoots th this film and, and, and the kind of fast pace of it, you really need someone who can hold your attention, mm. you know, as that central presence in the film. And she does that terrifically, I think. There's no point where you don't feel like she's kind of in control. Even when things are sort of unravelling a little bit for her, for her character, she still has that kind of like sense of you know strong will and determination about her which are, you know something to, very easy to buy into that mm. Idris Elba as we mentioned the lawyer I think this is one of his better screen performances or at least one of the better films that he's been on in, on the big screen well he's on top form he plays um, a lawyer who Molly meets with uh, after she's indicted by the FBI for her involvement with the Russian mob and he um, he's a nice foil to Jessica Chastain they have a really good sort of like rapport between them and um, it's nice to see him in a bit of a meteor role mm. where he's this kind of like slightly jaded lawyer who knows his job inside out and he's up against this woman who knows like 
her job inside out and they do butt heads a lot and he's a father which kind of factors into this little subplot which is uh yeah it, it feels like a nice departure for him it's kind of the role we i think a lot of us are wanting to be seeing Idris Elba in for a long time so it also involved in uh, a meeting cast Chris O'Dowd and someone who we can't name, Adam. Well, I mean, Sorkin clearly has a lot of fun with adapting her book because mm. a lot of it is a lot of the story is about the names that she could and couldn't or chose not to name in the book. In the sort of high high stakes poker game that she puts together, there's various people from the worlds of like finance and Hollywood, and one of the people she names is Player X. Uh, and I won't say who it's played by in the film because I think it's a, a nice surprise, but it's rumoured to actually be Tobey Maguire mm. in real life. But the moment where you introduce that character kind of threw me a bit because, well, it, I read it as this is this person sort of playing themselves. Right. Mm. But actually, I don't think it is that. They are playing a character. So it's not Tobey Maguire in the it's film? It's not Tobey Maguire. It's someone else. It's someone who's kind of, you know, similar yeah. in a way. And, I, yeah, and I was who, quite surprised when he popped up. Yeah, whoever. Although he's played this part quite a bit of late I think yeah and yeah. He, everyone recognise him and you, you'll know the moment when obviously you see it but but if you know the case at all if you know uh, Molly Bloom which I kind of did before coming to this film um, you'll know sort of Ben Affleck and DiCaprio oh, and really? Maguire were all involved in these really sort of glitzy poker games that she set up initially in Los Angeles and then in New York where it moves kind of financiers and um, the bankers and the mob eventually right well, this is Aaron Sorkin's directorial debut. For all the years he's been uh, churning out some pretty top televisual and, and cinematic entertainment, uh, this is the first time he's actually helmed a movie himself. His scripts include A Few Good Men, uh, Malice, Enemy of the State, The Rock, of course, The West Wing on TV. He also worked on the uh, script of Schindler's List, which is something I wasn't... I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. Mm. I will say of Sorkin, uh, sometimes he uses ten words when one word will do. Mm. And I think there's half an hour in this film you could cut out if he just kind of like someone said to him, like, I think you, you can just calm down a bit, Sorkin. Um, I quite enjoy his dialogue, though. I, mean, that, I do enjoy his... it. I do enjoy it. And I think um, there's some really sort of good dialogue in this, especially in the scenes between uh, Chastain and Elba. But I think the whole thing with the whole sort of subplot with Kevin Cosner, ah. like, lost me completely the film's two hours 20 minutes and it feels like it's two hours 20 minutes mm. all right then well we haven't been overly enthusiastic about it so far but what scores will we give this will we recommend this to people adam i'd say so it's it's like solid threes across the board for me and it's, mm-hmm. it's nice to see sorkin like stepping up and doing something where he's a bit more in control of it i think the last thing that i saw that he'd written and not directed was uh, the steve jobs film oh, right. mm. which i felt was just a total clash of two the different, danny boyle one yeah two yeah. different styles and you had sorkin and, and danny boyle and they're both try and kind of dominate really mm. the direction of where that film goes and, and it didn't really work for me so it's nice to see him being given this opportunity I think he makes the most of it yeah the one thing I will say of this film and a film that's coming out early next year I Tonya Hollywood needs to stop trying to pass off 30 year old women as 20 year old women there's a scene very early where Jessica Chastain is playing her character at 20 years old and Jessica Chastain is you know, looks incredible for her mid-30s, but she doesn't look 20. Mm. And the same thing happens in I, Tonya. They try and pass off Margot Robbie as a 15-year-old. Mm. And it's just, just cast someone younger for those scenes. It just looks ridiculous and throws me out the moment. Fair enough. What numbers would you give this, Hannah? I think a four, maybe, for anticipation, uh-huh. and then three and a three, but not in a bad way. I think it's it's an interesting film. Three. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see where Sorkin goes next. Yeah, I'd give it a four for anticipation and... 
it began certainly a four, and I think probably tails off to a three. But yeah, a very passable way to spend two hours and how much was it? Twenty minutes? Yeah, it yeah. does drag on a bit. And as I say, the last sort of twenty minutes when it tries to wrap everything up a bit too neatly mm. is where I really lost interest. All right. Well, next up, it's a double dose of Film Club. We'll have a chat about House of Games. Then we'll have special guest star Edgar Wright nominate his choice of a film club for 2018. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Now, look back over my shoulder. Guy in a beard and a cowboy shirt. You see him? Yes. He's from Las Vegas. He's been beating me all night. He's got to tell, okay? When he's bluffing, okay, he plays with his little gold ring. And I caught him doing it. And he knows I did, so he stopped. He's conscious of himself. I want you to do me this favor. What's that? I want you to be my girlfriend for a while. Come in the game. You stand behind me. Watch me play. We get in a big hand. I, I go to go pee. You watch this guy and tell me, does he play with his gold ring? Then I know he's bluffing. I win the big hand. And I forget the 800 your friend owes. Classic David Mamet here. Joe Mantegna, the con man, speaking to famous psychologist Margaret Ford, played by Lindsay Krauss, who has decided to try and help one of her patients get out of a gambling debt, but becomes drawn into the complex Chicago underworld of confidence men. We picked this film because, A, it's a bit of an old classic from David Mamet, and secondly, because, of course, it ties in with the whole poker element with Molly's game. And among the responses was this from... Bob Stanley out of Saint-Étienne, yes, the seminal pop band, who got in touch to say, Adam? Yeah, he, he sent an, a lovely uh, note and said, me and Pete Wiggs saw House of Games on a rental video in 1990. It was my introduction to David Mamet and we became fast fans. We would quote lines from it in the same way people used to quote from With Nan and I or Spinal Tap, but House of Games felt much more exotic than that. I love the clipped, ultra-stylized dialogue. The scene we quoted on Fox Base Alpha was probably our favourite. I wouldn't say that I ever went around yelling, I'm from the United States of Kiss My Ass. But there are other lines of Joe Mantegna's from the film, which I'm pretty sure I've absorbed into my everyday speech. Like, that's right. That's absolutely right. Uh, and he wraps up by saying, uh, the art of understatement and the correctly but sparingly applied swear word. That's how I'd like to think House of Games has inspired us. All right, there you go. Of course, they sampled it, trivia fans, uh, the movie, in their song Etienne Gonna Die from uh, Fox Space mm. Alpha. 
Nice one, Bob. What did you think, Adam, of House of Games? Yeah, I'd not seen this film before. Did you not? No. Uh, was was uh, yeah really pleasantly surprised. Was kind of fearing it being very like of its time, which in some ways it is. But yeah, really interesting parallels with Molly's game. This idea of a woman kind of being drawn into this man's world and. And yeah, I think Lindsay Krause is terrific in this. She's uh, she, she's not someone I, I'm particularly familiar with. Mm. She's uh, David Mamet's wife. Ah, so, okay. I think she. What, but the funny thing was, he'd made a bunch of films with Rebecca Pigeon as well, who I think was also his his consort. So I'm mm. not quite sure how you know, what the timeline is on all of that. <laughs> Her approach to the dialogue, and I presume this is very much Mamet's direction, is very different to everybody else's. Joe Mantegna has a stylized delivery, but hers is, has this kind of almost robotic quality that we saw in uh, in Lanthimos's Killing of a Sacred Deer earlier this year, which I really enjoy because it it seems to almost kind of hint at the fact that you don't need a naturalistic playing of a role in order for a drama to work. And it's one of these things that makes this movie so kind of off balance, off kilter. It, it throws you out of your comfort zone a little bit watching her perform. Yeah, I think um, Mame obviously is a playwright first and foremost, and uh, that comes across quite a lot with House of Games. It does feel like a production, but I don't say that in a negative way at all. I think it's a, it's a really great film about mm. human nature. And in fact, the tagline, which I thought was really good, is human nature is a sucker bet, which is <laughs> a great, great tagline. And um, it felt very sort of tricksy in a really good way. It was like you were being conned watching it and you're fully like, you're okay with it. It's... A really great sort of look at the way cons work and the way con men operate and the way that you sort of think you're in control of a situation not even in the context of a con but just in everyday life sometimes you know you think you're completely in control of something and the next minute you get the rug swept out from under you mm. i was just going to say you mentioned that lindsey krauss doesn't seem to feature in very many other things i'm always surprised that joe mantegna didn't mm. do more work after this well, a lot of people probably know him as fat tony in the simpsons okay he yeah. did the voice of that but yeah he, he was a sort of mainstay of like mobster films thrillers in in the sort of 80s of course the godfather <laughs> three he appears in as joey zaza yeah yeah he often appears in these sort of supporting roles but he he's quite memorable i think it's a shame mm. that he didn't really go on to do much else beyond this but mm. he's now on um one of my favorite tv shows which is criminal minds um, okay yeah it's uh, he plays the sort of main like fbi profiler in that and he's very good very i think he's very charming and uh, he's so charming in uh, house of games even though he is sort of a, a deeply unlikable character yeah. in other ways but it is a fascinating study i think of masochism and how you can be, even if you come from a place of virtue and being quite kind of wholesome, she's soon sort of corrupted uh, almost by osmosis by these people that she's sort of suddenly dealing with. Um, and yeah, it goes to some quite dark places, this film. And there's a great cameo in it, um, fans of cameos. William H. Macy appears in a, uh, just like a, a throwaway scene mm. in the Western Union. It's one of his, like, like his fourth film role or something. So yeah, that's a nice little trivia for you there. Nice one. All right, well, that was House of Games. Now, for our next film club, which we'll be revisiting, we asked Edgar Wright to come up with a film club suggestion of his own. Edgar will be joining us for our very special end-of-year Best Films of 2017 edition, which will be with you shortly. But in the meantime, here he is with his film club nomination. Walter Hill's The Driver, 1978. Well, it should be obvious that it's a, a big influence on my film Baby Driver. <laughs> I am... Um, I saw that movie the first time I saw it was probably it was on BBC One or Two late night when I was about 14 and um, I'd already seen some other Walter Hill films by that point like 48 Hours and maybe even Streets of Fire mm -hmm. 
all I knew about it was like the review in the Leonard Maltin's film guide, which said about it having eye popping car chases and like a sort of like a sharp script. Uh, you know, what's funny is I didn't really realize until later, until I actually did a Q&A with Walter Hill in Los Angeles for the movie, that it was like a flop at the time. In my head, it was like sort of just like a, you know, a 70s kind of like smash gem, you know. But it's a really interesting film because I think it's like it continues that lineage of like stripped down thrillers that sort of people always point to the samurai. Jean-Pierre Melville's The Samurai as being an inspiration for The Driver. And when I asked Walter Hill about that, he got quite prickly and he said, well, he goes, Jean-Pierre Melville and myself are both ripping off This Gun for Hire with Alan Ladd. Mm. That movie is really the first one with the kind of the, the criminal with like sort of, um, you know, this quite kind of zen lifestyle. But the thing about The Driver is that it's um, a film that seems almost entirely shot on L.A. nights and features a very small cast of characters that you don't learn their names. It's like the driver, the cop, the connection, the player. And um, it sort of plays out like a, a car chase chess match in a way. You know, the thing that's very different from Baby Driver is that, like, the cop character is as big a character as, as Ryan O'Neill's the driver. So you have Ryan O'Neill plays the mysterious, enigmatic driver. Bruce Dern plays the cop and probably has about 80% of the dialogue in the movie. And then you have Isabella Gianni, who's playing a character called The Player, who's like a sort of uh, a car player who comes into kind of the driver's orbit. But it's just sort of such a great boiled-down, stripped-down movie. It's like just like an absolutely watertight script where, like, nobody says anything unless they have to. And, like, you know, Ryan O'Neill, I think, says about 30 lines total in the movie. And uh, just everything is very meant. Everything is very spare. And... I always like, look at that movie as just like a real model of efficiency. Right. It's like um, there's absolutely zero fat. I sort of quizzed him on it. And I said, oh, the film is so precise, it's almost as if the main character made it himself. And Walter said this thing which made me laugh. He said, um, he said, well, I don't think I ever did a movie before or after where I screwed it quite as tight. And I thought, oh, that's a good expression. I like that. So there is an element to it where, like, sort of, for some people it's a little cold because, like, sort of, you, you know, all of the characters are enigmatic. You don't learn a lot about their backstory. They're all, like, sort of, like, walking enigmas. But I love it because of that. It's just a sort of a, a great kind of, like, neo-noir that is also really influential. Obviously an influence on me. Clearly an influence on Drive. Yeah. Also an influence on, like, Reservoir Dogs. Also, even an influence on James Cameron. If you actually watch The Driver and The Terminator back to back, pretty much the same locations in a lot of the movie. Hmm. So, like, sort of, James Cameron is like a sort of noted Walter Hill fan. Walter Hill also is like a, a fabulous screenwriter, not just the actual script that obviously what you hear in the movie, but if you actually like read the screenplays, if you get the hold of the screenplay for The Driver, the way that he writes action, he kind of has this whole like haiku, beat poetry way of writing, which is really fascinating. And in fact, one of the scripts I read before I started reading Baby Driver, just to see how Walter Hill wrote out a car chase. Did he write Alien as well? He did. Okay. He rewrote Alien. Okay. And in fact, his draft, I think his draft is the thing that is one of the biggest influences on the movie, because the original script was written by Dan O'Bannon and Ronald Shusett, I think. And then it was rewritten by Walter Hill and David Geiler. And one of the key things that they did 
true to form of like the driver is stripped down the dialogue massively mm. which is an amazing thing about alien and they don't really get enough credit kind of how stripped down it is so if you see it together with walter hill's other films of that period it is of a piece in a way especially the, the way the dialogue works and how minimalistic it is right there's two <clears throat> things i should mention about baby driver connections with walter walter hill actually is a voice in baby driver he's like a credited part because towards the end of the movie spoiler alert we get into a court and prison sequence and in the court the deaf character who's like baby's foster father he's signing in court but you hear an interpreter and that is Walter Hill talking huh. so Walter Hill appears in the last five minutes of Baby Driver and then also and this is also a spoiler alert Baby's prison jumpsuit number is the release date of the driver like 2907 1978 wow. <laughs> so that was my niche. thing so listen, if I rip off a film, at least I'll admit to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, loads more from Edgar when we discuss what initially was going to be our Best Films of 2017 podcast, but largely is, is a chat with, with Edgar Wright because he's a very interesting guy. Knows so much about everything. Yeah, mm. he's just Fascinating man. Yeah. Now, I mentioned back at the start the ongoing question of The Last Jedi. Nick writes in, he's troubled... He says, I'm not one for emailing podcasts, but I was so dumbfounded by the critical reaction to Last Jedi that I've been moved into action. He's got a whole list of questions. They largely centre around the fact that the critics' response has been unanimously very positive, but the, the public seem to be very, very mixed about it. Nick says, what am I missing that the whole world seems to be seeing? Please help Truth and Movies podcast. Sincerely, Nick. Well, there's no way we could fail to respond to such a heart-filled appeal. So if you haven't seen... The Last Jedi yet. Don't listen to this next bit, but for those of you who would like to get further thoughts on the latest instalment of Star Wars, stick around after this. Okay, spoilers ahoy then, as we uh, look again at The Last Jedi, which has been rapturously received by critics and some members of the public, but plenty of others, I mean, certainly on my timeline. I'm getting a lot of people saying, this is prequel bad. Why are the critics so head over heels with it? Adam, you've now seen it. I've seen it twice. Twice, yeah, me too. I've got to say, I enjoyed it more the second time round. Did you? Because the first time round, there's so many ideas and so many things that he tries to introduce. I don't think it's particularly successfully. I think tonally, it's, you know, it's a roller coaster. The slapstick humour doesn't really work for me. I think that's where it's straight into... Return of the Jedi territory a bit too much. I think comparing it to the prequels is a little bit harsh. <laughs> but my, my kind of final thoughts almost on this is, is that it's the film that Star Wars fans didn't necessarily want and mm. weren't expecting, but it's the film that is absolutely essential for this franchise to continue in the way that Disney have planned because we're going to get a lot more of these films. You know, This is a contained trilogy, but Ryan Johnson's already been asked to make a three more, I think. Yeah. And there's the Han Solo thing and... You know, we've got to this point now where the Skywalker saga has like dominated Star Wars since George Lucas's first film, right? I think he understood more than necessary. Some people are understanding, having watched the film, that that part of the franchise needed to end. And I think a lot of people are struggling with that. Rightly so. You know, it's it's a big part of so many people's lives. Mm. Seeing that kind of like finality. Of course, nothing's final in the Star Wars universe, yeah. but yeah. seeing the kind of the way it went, I think a lot of people felt quite scared of, you know, where this is going. I wrote a whole 
whole spiel about how much I love this film. Okay. For me, See, I get that this may not be the Star Wars film that I wanted, but that doesn't necessarily make it a bad film. And I do understand this message, which he makes very explicit, you know, particularly in lines of dialogue about the need to kill the past in order to move on. But... I kind of feel that if you start a trilogy with a set of storylines and then the second film, a new director comes in, jettisons that storyline, basically kind of tramples all over the big questions that you set up as the, you know, the, the big hooks, the cliffhangers in your first film because, no, well, I'm actually not interested in that. Now I've got to start something new. Fine, start something new in your next trilogy. But we invested in The Force Awakens and I think that if you make a sequel to that film, you owe something of a duty to the groundwork that was laid in that that film. Otherwise, it's ultimately an unsatisfying sequel. Well, this is what I was going to say, was that it's the film that needed to kind of happen, but it's arrived but one yet. film too early. Yeah. <laughs> and if this had been the final film in the trilogy, I think it would have made a lot more sense. And we maybe needed a little bit longer to get to this point, but it feels like such a big jump from, as you said, the kind of narrative groundwork that was laid very carefully in The mm. Force Awakens. Most of that is torn up here. I think sometimes it's brilliant. I mean, the moment early on where... Ray hands Luke the the light set and he just tosses it over his shoulder. <laughs> yeah. I mean that as a statement of intent for your film, that is just absolutely brilliant. I'm yeah, very, some... very ballsy, I think, from from Ryan Johnson. I think what we said last week, or certainly what I was suggesting last week, was that there are some great moments like that, and, and there are some truly bad moments. And how Ryan Johnson, whose previous work did nothing to lead us to expect anything like the Princess Leia, the Mary Superman Poppins through that space, that I will admit was a low point. That was yeah. What was going on? And then the other really low point for me was the bit at the end of the entirely unnecessary battle scene where Rose and Finn are about to get executed and all of a sudden ATST turns up and blows everything up. And who's yeah. in control of it? BB eight? Yeah, I think what they could have done better there is made the Captain Phasma thing more of a kind of event than it actually was, because they'd set that up in the trailer as a huge moment and then yeah. it kind of like just was like where and then yeah, this BB eight like Stone Cold Killer, <laughs> and it was it just. I think they're leaning a bit too heavily into the kind of cuteness of BB-8 and the mm. Porgs, and for me, it's weird, and I like weird, and I think it's nice to see a director of Star Wars who's not afraid to kind of lean into the weirdness of Star Wars. But yeah, funny, not always in a good way. Mm. People have uh, spoken a lot about the the scene in Back Two, the casino scene, yeah, as being a, a bit of a kind of pointless diversion, and and I understand that. I think as you know, if you're kind of following the plot literally ultimately it's a failed mission right and there are certain lessons that the characters learn from that but the big thing and the reason that scene i think is so important is that ron johnson is trying to set up this idea of like the next generation of people being not necessarily skywalkers and people who essentially privileged people who are trained to use the force but they're like kids and orphans in this case and and it's a, a lovely moment where uh, Rose and uh, Finn basically, you know, they come in and break up these orphans and, and I think there's a scene, at the a shot at the end where the kid's got the, the Rebel mm. Alliance ring on mm. and and it's a lovely final shot and I think it's made me much more excited for the next, not necessarily the next film but like where this is going to go the, where the he'll whole take saga, it in the other trilogy it really does leave <laughs> my, it wide open my issue open. with the casino though was the fact that it was so on Star Warsy. not just the mm. fact that it was complete uh, red herring but the fact that you go to a casino, you go to this other planet, and I don't know, it could have been a hut. It looks like Monte Carlo. It looks like Monte Carlo. <laughs> it should have been another cantina oh, or something like that. I think like it was that. totally naff, but it, it needed to happen at some point. I think the world building is what I kind of enjoyed most. The fact that Ryan Johnson wasn't afraid to have characters who make mistakes and aren't perfect, but also the idea that the Star Wars universe isn't just about the people who are on the Millennium Falcon. It is this bigger universe where things are going on and there are people who don't 
really care about the First Order. Right. And um, this is illustrated really well, I think, by Belnisha del Toro's character, who's not in it at all for very long, like five minutes of screen time. But you're, you get the impression he's going to be a big part of the next film. Right. And I mean, he, that essentially was what Han Solo was doing in the very first film, being yeah. somebody who was like a lovable rogue who didn't care anything about the fight yeah. between good and evil. I think the main problem with this film and with this new trilogy mm. is that they've introduced all these young characters. And I think the way they've handled the, the original characters, the way they've passed the torch and sort of phased them out. With the exception out, of Akbar. Well, yeah, <laughs> we'll come on to that in a minute because I think that is an interesting point. But the way they dealt with the death of Han Solo, the way they've dealt with, well, I think, I imagine the next film will open on like Leia's funeral or something. Right. And the way Luke's kind of been phased out, handled really well. The new characters, the problem is all of them, for me, occupy a very similar space. Like they've kind of made everyone Han Solo suddenly. Like everyone's quippy and trying to be the hero and maybe the characters learn a little bit that on every occasion can you be the hero but yeah. I think Poe Dameron has that kind of arc yeah he, definitely you know. but yeah just a point on that I think Ryan Johnson clearly is a big fan of Star Wars and knows his stuff but the, the moment especially second time around watching it that really yeah really stuck out for me was the scene in which Leia has her sort of Mary Poppins moment <laughs> in that scene uh, Admiral Akbar is basically dies yeah it's off screen almost and there's someone says something like, oh, we've lost... We've lost everyone. We've lost everyone. Akbar's Akbar. gone. He's, like, name-checked. But as a character who, albeit a fairly minor role in the original trilogy, he's someone who fans really love. Mm. I think it would have been just really nice to acknowledge that or give his character a bit of a moment or, or a proper send-off. And I think it's a sign of the film's... I would actually call it, like, arrogance. I agree with you. And I, I think what's going to be interesting as well is to see what J.J. Abrams, who was so clearly keen to make something which paid tribute to the original trilogy with Force Awakens, what he will do when he returns for the uh, ninth instalment, because, of course, mm. he's now in as the director. Lawrence Kasdan, who, as I say, did contribute a story which wasn't used for this film, is now working on the Han Solo film we'll find... Do you think we get in May? May uh, is that right, May? Yeah, it's pretty soon. All right. Well, looking forward to that. Well, eh? And just finally, the question that I guess we were originally trying to answer... Why is it, do you think, that the public have been so mixed but the critics have been universally so universal in their acclaim? I think it's just a, a, a fundamental difference between, like, critics and, like, fandom, you know? Mm. The critics or people who are kind of, like, being paid to review this film or, in some cases, maybe not, they're not necessarily, like, the hardcore fans. When right. we talk about, like, the general public, but, I'm not really sure what we're talking about there because yeah. a lot of what I've seen, certainly, from, like, the public response has been this, like online fan base mm. which so has a very set idea of like what this film is and what this property is right. and I think critics aren't necessarily as concerned with that the one okay. thing I will say is though there's been this whole thing not just with Star Wars with Justice League with every sort of blockbuster where they say we made this for the fans not the critics there's a whole misconception that critics are separate from fans the whole reason we are in film criticism is because we are fans mm. you know we want to like films no one goes into a film going oh I'm so excited to be mean about this film you know so at the end of the day, we're just like everyone else. No, but fans of cinema and specifically Star Wars fans, I must admit, I put it down a lot to the fact that people who are fans of a certain kind of Star Wars film went to see this because of this and not necessarily the people who yeah. are ordinarily cinema fans yeah. and reviewing this because it, it's their job. Yeah. yeah, it does a lot that the others didn't. Excellent. All right, well, if there's anything else you want us to revisit, do get in touch. But for now, that is it for this edition of Truth and Movies. Remember, our special end-of-year movies of 2017 featuring Edgar Wright will be with you shortly. For the moment, it's many thanks to Hannah Woodhead and Adam Woodward. You're welcome. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, have a lovely festive period. This has been a 7 Digital production. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.